0: Um, Bryce has been doing a, a study, leading us in a study on the life of David. This morning, I want to give the background for why God selected David to replace Saul as the king of Israel, and it's because of this event that I'm going to read about here in 1 Samuel 15. Then Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself up against Israel on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. It's a tough passage. Then Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. Saul came to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the valley. Saul said to the Kenites who were living there, go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to the sons of Israel when they came up from Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. So Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as you go to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed." Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Saul was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. Then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Samuel came to Saul. And Saul said to him, "'Blessed are you of the Lord, "'I've carried out the command of the Lord.' But Samuel said, "'Well, then what is this bleeding of the sheep "'I hear in my ears, "'and the lowing of the oxen which I hear?' Saul said, "'Well, they have brought them from the Amalekites, "'for the people spared the best of the sheep and oxen "'to sacrifice to the Lord your God, "'but the rest we have utterly destroyed.'" In verse 13, Saul said, I carried out the command of the Lord. And Samuel's response was, well, then what, why do I hear the bleeding of the sheep and the lowing of the oxen? You know, normally the bleeding of sheep on a hillside would have brought a smile to any Israelite. And the smell of oxen and donkey, though maybe it's not an altogether pleasant smell, would usually make you feel pretty good on the inside because it meant things were going well, that God had blessed, the land was prosperous. Or maybe you would see sheep and you would think about how, great, how God graciously provided for the forgiveness of sins through the sacrifice of such animals. Or you might be reminded of our own human quality of being like helpless sheep, and yet God has desired to be our shepherd anyway. But those thoughts are far from Samuel's mind, not this time. Not for Samuel. Today, when Samuel hears those sounds, it brings a frown to his face, and it makes his stomach turn, because he knows that those sounds mean direct disobedience by Saul. And then, on top of it all, when, Saul, when Samuel saw King Saul talking to Agag, the evil king of the Amalekites, who more than any other should have been killed, that was just the last straw. Never in his whole life had Samuel been so angry. In fact, Samuel regretted the day that Saul had been anointed king of Israel by Samuel's own hands. As Samuel saw this normally comforting and peaceful scene, his mind went back certainly to the instructions that had been earlier given to King Saul, where Samuel said to Saul, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he set himself against Israel on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Now, go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare. Not only did God give a command, but he also gave the reason for the command. He said, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel how he set himself against Israel on the way coming, coming from Egypt, eventually to the Promised Land. The background for this command is seen in Deuteronomy 25, beginning with verse 17, where God says, Remember what Amalek did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt, how he met you along the way and, and attacked among you all the stragglers at the rear, those who were faint and weary, and he did not fear God. Therefore, it shall come about that when you are given rest from your surrounding enemies in the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven you must not forget. God had no respect for these cowardly attacks against women and children and the elderly. I mean, meet them direct, head on, in battle. Man against man, but not this. God never forgot what they did and how they did it, and God vowed to exterminate them. And exterminate means there is none left. And God gave this as the reason for his command to Saul at this time, that God is keeping a promise he made long ago. Now, God doesn't doesn't have to give a reason for, for a command, and he doesn't always In the Ten Commandments, it could be said that for four of them, God gave a reason for the command. But for the other six, He just simply gives the command with no reason. Although, you know, you read them and they're common sense. But here, though, through Samuel, God does give the reason for the command to utterly destroy the Amalekites. And the command is pretty easy to understand, especially in the context of the reason it was given. Most of God's commands are are pretty easy to understand. The Ten Commandments, easy to understand. In fact, they're so easy that most people are willing to to use the Ten Commandments as the the factor to, to determine their eternal destiny by how well they keep them. But they don't really understand what a disaster that is going to be if that's the standard that God chooses. But most of God's commands are easy to understand, but not always easy to obey, as Saul found out here. Saul was given the privilege. What do you think? Could you count? Would you call call it a privilege to be chosen by God to carry out this long-standing desire of God, as difficult as it might be? It could be called a privilege. Certainly, was a responsibility. God gave Saul the responsibility of carrying out what was long past due to the Amalekites. The Amalekites had neither repented nor changed their ways. And God's patience with them was now up. This was not subject to interpretation or opinion or any man's approval. The command was very clear and concise and to the point. And it was difficult. I mean, everyone and everything was to be destroyed. There there always have been and there always will be those who do not like this command. I mean, all the children. I can't say as I like it either but all I can do is try to understand. But here is one of my main points today that is, that even if we do not understand the why of God's commands, we have no right to, in effect, change God's laws by our own disobedience to it, as Saul did here. Now, I think maybe I might understand somewhat of why God said here to destroy the innocent. It could be this, maybe. If God had allowed those children to grow up and follow their parents' footsteps, where would they end up for eternity? And where are they now? Do they regret now God's decision way back then? I don't think so. I think right now they are praising God's wisdom and mercy. Now, maybe that's too simplistic of an explanation, but it helps me to understand. But even if I do not understand a command, It gives me no right to question the decision and the command of Almighty God. I mean, I guess I can question it if I want to. I I don't think God minds honest questions. But still, I had better obey, even if I question it. Saul had his command. But before the the command was given, Saul was reminded of why God expected complete, unquestioned obedience from him. In verse number 1, Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you as king over his people, over Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Saul is reminded of who he is and the position that he holds and the God that he serves. Her son said, I'm not going to Bible school today. She said, give me one good reason why you're not going. He said, I'll give you two. They don't like me and I don't like them. The mom said, well, son, I'm going to give you two good reasons why you should go. One, you're 33 years old. Two, number two, you're the preacher. (laughs) Saul was chosen by God to be the first king. He was reminded of that privilege and the responsibility that goes with it. As king, the nation would follow his leadership and his example. If his example was just unquestioned obedience at all times, that is how the nation would go. But if his example was obedience only when it was convenient or when it suited his whims or when it made sense to him, well, then that's how the nation would go. So Saul was reminded of that, that even even though all Israel was subject to him as king, he, Saul, was still subject to the Lord God. Now, I don't know exactly what happened with Saul. Did he forget after the command was given? Did he forget? Was he not really listening to Samuel? Did he deliberately disobey, knowing full well what God had commanded? I don't know. I don't know what was going through his mind when he made his choice to do what he wanted to do. But you know, it doesn't really matter because the the end results are the same. God considered it direct disobedience because he did not do what he was told, period. And that was especially critical since Saul was in a leadership position. I mean, the leadership position. His example would set the tone for the rest of the nation. Now, let's think about Saul's act of, of disobedience. Did you notice that at first Saul was obedient? Remember the the parable that Jesus told of the two sons? His father gave a command and one son said, no, no, I'm not going to do that. And then later he changed his mind and did what his father asked. The second son was also asked to do the same thing. And the son said, yes, father, I will. But then he never did. Then Jesus asked, which did the father's will? And the answer was so obvious that even the enemies of Jesus knew the answer to that question. Now, Saul fits into this category. God said, go and strike Amalek. Do not spare anyone or anything. But before Saul began to destroy the Amalekites, he gave an opportunity to the Kenites, as we read there, who lived in that region, an opportunity to leave now and be spared. And that was good. I mean, as far as we know, God did not command Saul to spare the Kenites, but we should not need a direct command from God to do a good deed. If the the opportunity is there to do something good, we we just do it. These descendants of Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had shown kindness to Israel in the wilderness. So now Saul is showing kindness to them, and that was good. And then Saul proceeded to defeat the Amalekites. I mean, so far, so good. He was told to utterly destroy, do not spare, man, woman, child, infant, but... He kept Agag, the king, alive, and he kept the best of the animals. So how much did Saul obey? Could you say that Saul obeyed 50% of God's commands? Did he kill 99.9% of the living things? I mean, by some standards, Saul didn't do too bad. Most coaches would be content if they would win over half of their games. You probably aren't too disappointed if you catch half the traffic lights when you go through Claremont or Orlando. I mean, catch them green, you know what I mean. I don't think you'd be very happy if your AC worked only 50% of the time. In fact, most of us would not be happy if it was 90% of the time. If you knew that your smoke detector would work only half the time, you would replace it. If your phone worked only half the time, you would replace the phone or get another provider. And you definitely want your brakes to work in your car 100% of the time. See, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about your electricity or your car starting or your television. Whatever it is, you would not be content with them if they worked only half the time. In fact, you expect them to respond all the time. It's the same with God. God expects 100% obedience at all times. James says it like this in James 2.10. Whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he becomes guilty of all. In Saul's case, even though obedience was started, and started well, it was incomplete. And it was viewed by God as direct disobedience, and God compared it, as we're going to read here eventually, God compared it to the sin of divination and idolatry. But what makes this disobedience especially sad and dangerous is this. Even though it began with one man, King Saul, it was followed by all the people who were with him. Now, sure, they may have been totally unaware of God's command to Saul. Don't know. If so, you can hardly blame them for what they did. But even if so, they were denied the opportunity of carrying out the will of God because their leader, did not lead them into complete obedience. No, they were not held accountable, but they were denied a great blessing. It's extremely important for those who know the commands of God to correctly tell and model those who do not know so that they too can receive the blessing of obedience. Benjamin Franklin did not have to try to sell the idea of street lamps to the city of Philadelphia. All he did was put one in his front yard. And everybody else wanted one. That's the kind of example that we are to be in our obedience. You know, many of you are leaders in one way or another. Really, really, all of us are. We need to be sure that our instruction and our example match the Bible as closely as we can possibly at all times and in all areas. And not just for our own sake, but for the sake of those that are watching and following our example. And then... As if all of that wasn't bad enough, look what else Saul did in verse number 12. Saul set up a monument for himself. Remember how humbly Saul started? Started out as a very humble man. Frank Szymanski was a Notre Dame football center back in the 1940s, and he had been called into court as a a witness in a civil suit in South Bend, Indiana, and the judge said, are you on the Notre Dame football team? And Samansky said, yes, Your Honor, I am. Well, what position do you play? I am center. Are you any good? Szymanski replied, well, he, he kind of squirmed, and finally he, he, he said, yeah, Your Honor, I'm the best center that Notre Dame's ever had. And the coach of the team was really surprised at his response because Szymanski had always been very modest and unassuming. And so when the proceedings were over, he took Szymanski aside and said, why would you say you're the best center Notre Dame's ever had? And Samansky, kind of blushing, said, well, I hated to do it, coach, but I was under oath. <laughs> Remember how at the start, Saul wanted no glory and honor for himself? He didn't even want to be king. He was hiding among the baggage, do you remember? He didn't feel he was worthy of the job. But now his pride has swelled to the point that he makes a monument for himself and the incredible victory that he had accomplished. Me, me, me. Glory to me. And it was all just a sickening stench of disobedience and pride in the nostrils of God. So let's look at the punishment. Saul had actually convinced himself that what he did was good, and that somehow God owed him for this. Even though deep down, Saul really knows that he disobeyed, he sinned. Did you notice how he laid the blame on the people? They did it. Now think about that. That is a very subtle admission that he really knew that he had truly disobeyed God's command because he says the people did it. But even then, he still tries to justify what they did. They saved the best to sacrifice to the Lord, of course. All for God. Even the monument was really meant you know, to honor God and not me. But Saul will soon find out what he already knew and should have remembered that God wants obedience more than sacrifice. He brought all these animals supposedly to sacrifice, but God really wants obedience. But you know, it's a lot easier to bring a bull or a goat or a sheep to the altar than to bring every thought and every act into disobedience. That's the hard part, isn't it? In verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, wait and let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Saul said to him, speak. It's almost like Saul is saying, I can't wait to hear God's praise. And was he really expecting a commendation from God for this kind of, sort of obedience? Didn't he know that he had already received his reward? Because his reward was the spoils of war and the monuments and the praise of men, and he got exactly what he wanted. But it was far less than what he could have received and should have wanted, and that is the praise, the praise of God. Verse 17, Samuel said, is it not true? Though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel. And the Lord anointed you king over Israel. And the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? God knew where Saul's heart really was. I mean, Saul knew it too. It was all on whatever personal gain he could get out of all of this. Verse 20. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag king king of Amalek and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choicest of the things devoted to destruction to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Even by by Saul's own admission, even if those words were absolutely true, Saul was still guilty, for he had spared King Agag. Instead, Instead, he brought him as a captive, probably for the honor that he, Saul, would receive from his people back home when he parades the enemy king bound in chains through the streets of Jerusalem. It was all for more honor and glory for himself. And the thing here is not just Saul's disobedience, which was real enough, but two other things in in here as well. He insists that he knows more than God. It just wouldn't be right, he says, to kill all of these good animals and let them go to waste like them. Kill them? That's, That's crazy. Let's just kill the scraggly ones. And the best ones we'll let live and bring them home with us. And if somebody asks why, we'll say that they are sacrificed for God. And then on top of that, he shows absolutely no repentance. When David, if you remember, was confronted by the prophet Nathan about his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, David's response was, I've sinned. No excuses, no explanations, just a simple, humble, I've sinned, I'm sorry. But Saul shows no re- repentance at all. Even, if, even his show of repentance is an obvious fake. And that right there is the reason why God chose David to replace Saul as king. Verse 22. Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? You think that's what God really wants, is these animals? He wants obedience. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now therefore please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship that I may worship the Lord. Saul has put on robes of repentance. Looking like he's repentant, but deep down inside he's still the same man. God knows it, Samuel knows it, he knows it. Saul had his chance like David with Nathan. But once judgment has been passed Repentance, of course, is too late. You know, everybody's going to repent when they stand before God's throne. And sentence has been given, but then it'll be too late. I mean, sure, they will mouth the words of repentance, but their sorrow is really only that they got caught. How many millions upon millions will say similar words that Saul said here at this time, justifying or trying to justify their actions initially Lord when didn't we see the hungry and give them food or when didn't we care for the sick or or when didn't we clothe the naked and then admitting their sin when they see that those excuses just do not work and then begging for mercy but then it will be too late verse 26 Samuel said to Saul I will not return with you For you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned to go, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and given it to your neighbor who is better than you. That's David. Also, the glory of Israel will not lie or change his mind, for he is not a man that he should change his mind. And Saul said, I've sinned. But please honor me. see what he wants? Honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and go back with me that I may worship the Lord your God. Again, it's all about him. So Samuel went back following Saul, and Saul worshiped the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, thinking, surely the bitterness of death is past. Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, but Saul went up to his house at Gibeah of Saul. Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, for Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king. Six quick lessons lessons. First of all, God's laws do not change. I mean, there are no buts. They are not relative to anything else. God makes the terms and the rules. If he says, sacrifice the cattle in the field, do not bring them to the altar. We may not understand why the command. It may not make sense, but God expects obedience. Secondly, God is patient but his patience only goes so far. This is not the first time that Saul disobeyed, but it marked the point at where God finally said, enough, this is it. And third, we have been called and chosen like Saul. That alone is the reason to obey without questioning and to obey fully. And not just to begin to obey as Saul did but, or, or to go partway, but to finish it completely. And then fourth, when we do sin, because we do. Our, David did. What a horrible sin David did. Sins. But when we sin, our repentance should be immediate and genuine, just like David's was. And then fifth, in everything we do, we should be able to see glory for God in some way spring out of it, and not glory just for myself or some monument to build for myself. And then sixth, when, we are, you know, when discipline comes our way from God, and it does, accept it, learn from it, and grow from it. Be like David and not like Saul. This morning, if you have a decision to make today, maybe it's a decision that you can make right there in your seat. I think most of the decisions we make, we can make right in our seat, and that's good, between you and God. But if you do need to talk to somebody, whether it's one of the elders or myself or Bryce when he gets back, make sure you don't put it off. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have, in spite of who we are and the kind of sinners that we are, to be made right with you through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you so much for his sacrifice We thank you for these stories from the Old Testament. Some of them are really hard, really tough. But some really strong lessons come through. And one is that you expect complete obedience from us. So Father, any decisions that we need to make in our seats, whether it's a time of repentance, seeking forgiveness, some change in our lives, I pray that you will give us the courage to do so. Again, we thank you for your love for us and the forgiveness that we have through your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray, amen.